If you've been with us, you know what we've been doing. We're finishing our study in 2 Corinthians. Uh, it came on the heels of 1 Corinthians, which was like two years ago. So it's been a pretty oh, interesting walk through that. And I'm going to one last time go through this idea. And Emily said it this morning again that, that, that life is hard and the church isn't perfect. That even in the church, we have hurts. And as Paul wraps up this letter, he's going to come full circle on that idea to the people he's addressing in the letter, right? We're going to talk about that today as he kind of closes his letter to the Corinthian church before his third visit. We talked about how uh, we're, we are called to be forgiving people, that uh, change is going to happen whether we like it or not. That's the only constant is change, um, that we serve in this world, but we put words to our service. We're influencers of others, especially our children. Uh, we're called to have open hearts. Uh, we're um, to be generous, faithful in our finances. Uh, we know we'll face spiritual conflict, and we should fight with the weapons of God, not the weapons of mankind or the flesh. And uh, then lastly, that um, we're called to be fools for Christ. And fundamentally, that doesn't mean we're foolish, but it means that we're completely committed to this thing that we call a relationship with Jesus. Not, not a, a religion, not a practice. Now, we do practice our faith, but this enduring, intimate, more intimate marriage relationship. And so that's where we left off last week. And so with all those things we've covered, I have a question as we get started this morning, and that's this. You know, Chris and I have been talking about, we're, we're, we've had some significant birthdays, let's say, you know, for, for us. And um, we begin to reflect on what are we trying to do with our life. And I wonder, and maybe especially for the young folks here, we have some babies in the room and, and all that. You know, what is, the, what is the vision for the end of your life? Like, where do you want to end up? And today we're going to talk about that from uh, Paul's perspective and what he's ultimately trying to do, listen, in and through the church in Corinth, but even why he came to them to begin with. What was his intention? And then um, what are the goals that, that we might have? Um, here's another question. Like, what is the point of our work or of our love or of our faith? And so in this final message, we're going to talk about what it means to have a vision for the end. So with that said, I'm going to do what we always do. We're going to pray um, over the, uh, the opening of the word that we might understand it more deeply together. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this chance to be gathered together as your people and to be celebrating all that you, um, all that you are. Who you are, Father, we celebrate. We say these things all the time, but you are a good God we know that your word says that before um, one day came to be, you knew all the days of our lives. The, the word says that you know every hair on our heads and even how many hairs we have on our heads right now. Every day we are intimately known. We sang a song to you, Father, that says that you know us by name, that you're, inter that you're intimately interested in each of us and all of us. And so, Father, we just give you praise and thanks for that reality today. We admit we live in this place where we, we, we lose track of that. We forget that we are known and you want us to know you. And so today as we open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we would be sitting at your feet learning from uh, you, from your spirit and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, the sacrifice made on the cross that we might even pray to you now. And so in this time, teach us. Uh, help us to submit to you and help us to listen to you well. We pray you do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to go ahead and open to uh, 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week, which is in verse 11. So we're gonna, um, Paul's gonna have some final words here and then some closing thoughts in this, in this book. This is what the word says. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I, I ought to have been commended by you because I am not in the least in fear to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was not a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. And now I am ready to visit you for the third time and I will not be a burden to you because I, what I want is not your possessions but you. So Paul, is, I'm going to go on a little more here. Um, Verse 14, after all, children should not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself for you as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? So we're going to start with that section of Scripture. So Paul's talking again here about being a fool for Christ, but he says something interesting. He says that um, you have driven me to make a fool of myself. Now, you'll recall that he says, um, I'm, I'm foolish to talk this way, and he talks about how and we're going to come back to this, that those who are amongst the church in Corinth are foolish to compare themselves with themselves, right? That this boasting is not helpful in what God is doing in the world. But then Paul says something uh, really radical here. He says that I've been driven to be a fool, but he says this, these super apostles, I'm going to look at it with you, I am not in the least bit inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing, that's interesting because what Paul says about those who are amongst the church in Corinth boasting about their holiness and their Christianity and their doctrinal understanding, that those who are boasting among them are less than nothing. Do you see what he says there? This, this, this idea, of, and it's like, well, what's a super apostle anyway, you know? And again, you can sense in Paul here, and some people will read this with snark. Now, I think it's a little dangerous to read the Bible snarkily, like with sarcasm, right? Sarcasm is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. But Paul does seem to be kind of eliciting some compassion from them. What does he say? He says, I ought to have been commended by you. What is he saying there? Have you ever seen someone that you deeply respect or love do something foolish? Like something where it just kind of makes you go, oh, no, don't, don't, right? Um, my, uh, my daughter will do that for me sometimes. She'll, she'll see me acting in some way, like usually too young, and she'll be like, dad, stop, stop, right? That's more about her embarrassment. But have you ever had someone that you're like, no, 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 don't, don't do that, don't do that? Because we're embarrassed for them. But have you ever seen someone do something humiliating, someone whom you respect? Well, Paul says that I ought to have been commended by you. Like, he brought the gospel. He shared the gospel. They were born again in Christ, and yet he's having to justify himself, and he says, becoming a fool because 
of your questioning of my apostolic authority. Then he says that I'm not in the least inferior. So these super apostles are less than nothing. What is the lesson from this? And this is, we're going to get into apostleship in a moment here because he talks about the marks of an apostle. But this idea that any time we are boasting about our faith, we are doing it wrong. We're heading the wrong direction. Paul actually says, I'm not least in any of these, and yet I am nothing. He puts himself on the lowest bar, right? I'm, I'm nothing, but they're less than me. Which means that if we are to boast in our Christian faith, if we're to walk around acting as if we're better than everyone else, we're actually going the wrong direction. What did Christ teach about this? Whoever is least among you will be greatest. There's no aspirational as far as like being better than everyone, Christianity. There's a right understanding of our position. As a matter of fact, in other writings, Paul says, um, I, I am among sinners of whom I am the worst. <laughs> he's very self-aware of his own sin, which means when he's calling out the church in Corinth for sin, he's not judging them. He's pleading with them to be reconciled to Christ. We're going to talk about that today as well. So when we boast we're heading the wrong direction, when we boast in who we are or what we have or what we know, but the right direction is to be the least of these, to recognize our position in the God-oriented gospel. So then Paul says this, I showed the marks of a true apostle among you. Now we're going to spend a minute on this. The things that mark an apostle, and the word mark there means signs, and it's like a, a commendation or an approval, right? Paul has this weird experience where he wasn't, he didn't walk among, with Christ, Jesus, on the earth like the other apostles who saw him crucified and died. Paul was Saul, and he was actually a Jewish believer, and he was trying to destroy Christians, you'll recall. But Paul met Jesus, and Paul was sent on a mission from Jesus. And here Paul is like, and I'm one who was sent, and I have the proof in my ministry of Christ. We're going to come back to that too later. Proof of the ministry in Christ. What does it look like? Paul says three things here. Signs and wonders and miracles among you. He came approved by God. He came demonstrating what an apostle would demonstrate. That's the first one, a sign. It's the same thing. The mark is the sign. It's the same word repeated twice in that same verse. But then it says these two things, wonders, which means that God does something among you that you cannot explain. The word wonder means to be in awe. We get the word awesome from the same idea, right? What is that? That's awesome. I know I'm a kid of the 80s, but things were awesome in the 80s, you know? Because we were impressed. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. And so Paul becomes with signs of wonder, or wonders, yes, signs of wonders among them. That just means that he's doing things that they can't fully explain. Now, we, I'm going to be careful because we might and we could run right into, well, this is the stigmata. These are the marks. Some people believe that this is where, you know, Paul shows his own wounds, the reality is that God will do things in our lives through faith that we cannot fully understand or explain, that even the drawing of us to Christ is a miracle in and of itself. But I'm not cheapening these. Paul says, the wonders, you were awestruck by my 
coming to you by the gospel that I preached to you, not because of me, but because of Christ, marks of one who is sent. Secondly, he says, I was, had the signs of miracles among you. And so signs and wonders and miracles, and these are things that only God can do. So Dale talked earlier about a thorn in the flesh, removing the thorn in the flesh. We know in the early church that the dead were raised. We know that people were healed as the Christians just went about their lives. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is whenever um, Peter is going through the gate called Beautiful just to worship God. He's going to where he's always gone to worship God, and on the way by, someone asks him for a coin, and he's broke. He says, I don't have it, but I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and don't miss it, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man walks at the gate called Beautiful. Now, is that to say that we should expect miracles? Some believe so. In other words, that if it's a real prophet of God, you're going to have miracles. But Paul says, these things have been worked among you. And you know it. You know it. What is a miracle anyway? something that only God can do. Have you seen a miracle in your own life? I know some of you have. I know some of you maybe feel like you haven't. Paul says these are signs that accompany an apostle, a true apostle. Now, get this. How? (laughs) How do you end up experiencing wonders of God and miracles of God? Paul says this. Through perseverance. Now, in the, my translation at NIV, it actually says it that way. It says, um, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance, right? And that's the right way in the Greek. But in the new translation, NIV, it says, with perseverance, I worked among you the works of the apostles, as if the perseverance manifests the fruit. But the reality is that it's through persevering in our faith, I believe, That's what the word is saying, that it's through staying the course, doing the work that God's wonders and miracles are known. Paul says to them, I've done this among you with great perseverance, meaning his own, but I would even say that this letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth is him still trying to persevere. (laughs) It would have been so easy for Paul to go like, it's enough to the church in Corinth. I've given you two tries already. I've been there. I've written you letters. Deal with it. And he's like, no, I'm going to come to you a third time because I am still trying, trying to build you in the faith. Signs, wonders, and miracles, okay? Look at this. Now we're going to turn a little bit here. Paul says, I have these marks, um, the only way you were inferior to other churches except I wasn't a burden to you. He's going to expand on that in a minute, so we'll just let that set for a moment. Forgive me this wrong again. Maybe some sarcasm there, right? The only thing I didn't do was a burden to you. But look at the relationship he claims for the church. Now I am ready, there verse, verse 14, now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. Why? Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents save up for their children. So two things Paul's doing here, and and, um, we're going to translate this from Paul's care for the church to God's care for us, but he says, um, I don't want your stuff. (laughs) Funny, 
because he just talked about being generous, didn't he? And about giving to the church in Jerusalem, about the Macedonians being so generous. He's made much of generosity, but then he ends by saying, I don't want what you have. It's not what he wants. What does he want? You. Here's how we say that with God. God wants all of us. God wants all of us. Not the things we possess, but, ev- but the totality of who we are. I don't even want to say everything that we have because that's not even accurate. The totality of who we are is what God is interested in, and it's what Paul is interested in in Corinth. Now, do you think Paul wants that for himself? No. What did he just say last week? I promise you to a husband. I want all of you for God. I don't want you, what you have, but I want the totality of you. All of you is what I'm after. Then he does this. After all, children shouldn't save for their parents. So he sees himself as a parental figure in their life. I'm trying to bless you. I'm not asking you to give me what is yours, but I'm trying to give you what is mine. I'm trying to pass this on to you. Making much of this, he says in 13, or 15, I'm sorry. We're going to come back to this in a moment. So I will very gladly spend everything I have for you. That's part one of Paul's conviction to the church in Corinth. And then this, and I will gladly be spent for you. You see, the first part there is, sounds kind of like whatever Paul has, like I'm going to invest in the church in Corinth. I'm just going to pour everything I have into it. But then he turns it and he says, and I'm going to be spent, me. It's going to cost me something to be for you, to be with you, to encourage you, to build you. This great uh, generosity. So what can we say then? God wants all of us. I want to say uh, two things. First of all, going backwards to the book now, God doesn't just want our money. I shouldn't say that that way. No, no, no. Let me say it again. God doesn't want our money. He doesn't want our time. He doesn't want our hearts. He doesn't want our words. He doesn't want our service. He wants us. Like, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that makes sense to me. Like, we're in a world where you're so used to people wanting something from you, but not you. Just give me what I need, but not the totality of who you are. But God is not interested in part of us. He wants all of us. How does this work in in real life? Uh, This is something I struggle with because I want to serve I want to love, I want to pray, I want to believe rightly, I want to do what God's calling me to do, and I find myself in my prayer life saying to God, you know me. You know all of me, so use me. But I wonder, have I really given all of myself to him? Does that make sense? <laughs> like, Not the pretty stuff, not the great, but everything. He's interested in in me. Now that's beautiful because all of a sudden it means that the scriptures come alive with, it's not that you tithe so you're holy or you're generous so you're holy or you do the right things, you're holy, or you say the right things, you're holy, or even that you're made that you're holy, but rather he says you're holy. It's in him, I am his, 
and he is mine. God, God wants all of us. I mean, <laughs> I can't say that. Any, it sounds crazy. All of us, the totality of who we are, wait, the totality of who we were in this life before we came to hear the gospel. God wants all of us. And he wants all of who we will become. There's no exception clause. Paul says by demonstration, I don't want what you have, I want you. God doesn't want what we have, he wants us. But there's a second way to think about this too. Because when Paul says, I don't want all that you have, but I want you, he also means that everyone in Corinth and everyone the Corinthian church might reach with the gospel. I think that God wants all of us. That means he was interested in every person individually in the church of Corinth, but all the church of Corinth. Or he wants every person at Family Bible and all of Family Bible. And that's not true just Family Bible. He wants all of every person who claims to know his son Jesus. All of us. And so God is interested in each and all of us at the same time. Not what we possess, but who we are. So I wonder, are you giving all of yourself to God? Are you playing some game where you're acting as if he doesn't know you, as if he didn't make you, as if he doesn't know your future, and you're trying to keep, you know, stuff from him? Or are you just giving yourself? God, you want me? You got me. All of me. Going on then, Paul says here, Parents will save for their children, not children for their parents. I will gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I've never been a burden to you. Now get this, yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Again, that sounds a little tongue-in-cheek, right? I came and I tricked you with the gospel that God sent his son to die for all of your sins so you could be free. I came and imparted to you the Holy Spirit that you could have Christ dwelling in you as a trick just so I can get your stuff. It's like, no, that's not what I did. It goes on, 17. I didn't exploit you, nor did the men I sent to you. Titus didn't exploit you, nor the brother that went with him. Did he? We acted in the same spirit and by the same course or in the same path. So Paul's like, um, I wasn't trying to deceive you with the gospel. <laughs> There's no, what is it? There's no bait and switch. There's no trick at the end. It's not about deceiving you at all. Taking that same idea, I want to say that God is not trying to trick us out of our best life. He's not trying to get us to give up something that is better than what he's going to give to us if we were to give it up. It's not a deception, it's the path to true life. Many people, I think, feel like we're, trying, we're, we're so used to being deceived in the world that we think there's just another deception. It's not. God has better things planned for us than we could ever hope for or imagine. Therefore, we can have faith in him. We can live in him. Do we think he's being crafty with us? Do you think he's trying to deceive you right now? As your heart calls you home, as, you, as you're called to believe the gospel for yourself, as you're called to believe that he wants everything and not just the good stuff, do you think he's trying to trick you so that when you expose it, he can, he can really take advantage of that part of your life? 
Or is he trying to heal you, to bless you, to hold you, or to know you? I don't believe he's trying to trick us, and Paul's not trying to trick people. I'm certainly not trying to trick you in anything. Faith in anything except for Jesus Christ himself will come to nothing apart from him. And then he says, did we ever deceive you? We didn't. And he says this last thing, which I want to touch, and then we're going to move on. We all acted in the same spirit, and we all followed the same course. Now, this is one of my favorite words in the Greek. It's peripateo. It means we all walked around in the same spirit of God. That Paul can be confident when he sends Titus and when he sends people from Macedonia that there are people who are walking in God's Holy Spirit, and he's convinced that God's Holy Spirit is working in Corinth and that they've made the same path through there. Sometimes I talk to friends and they say, I've seen the same pattern, right? I've seen it. I feel like God's trying to tell me something. He probably is, right? You start to see things connecting. There's a, a unifying spirit. I've been um, told by people who are in the church and out of the church, they're like, I feel like all the churches are starting to say the same things on this issue. And I'm often like, that's a sign. God's doing something through his people. Not in me only, not in you only, not in us only, but in his people. So the same spirit leads to the same path. We walk by the same spirit. We're going to come back to that at the end of the message today. How do you know you're in Christ? Moving on now, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Now watch what Paul does here. We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And in everything we dear. We do, dear friends, our beloved, that's what the word says, it is for your strengthening. That's the same word we had before. I'll come back to that. Because I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be. And when you, you may not find me as you want me to be. And I feel like there may be quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and factions and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder. Coming back to that. I'm afraid that uh, when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of this impurity, of sexual sin, and of debauchery in which they have indulged. So Paul's like, I'm coming and I'm nervous about my visit. But look at what he says here, and it's so wonderful. Do you think I've been talking just to you this whole time? We could read this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth and like, this is what Paul wanted to tell the people in Corinth, right? He had some things to say, but this is what Paul says about this letter that we've been reading. We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. I want to say that again. Paul's confession is that we have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Jesus Christ in everything we do. Is for your strengthening. This is what I think Paul's saying. God sees everything. God sees everything. I remember whenever I was a little kid and I was taught that, that God's omnipotent and omnipresent, and I'm like, and all-knowing, right? And I'm like, wow, that's, that's wild, but it kind of scared, you know, like God sees every, like that thing God sees, that thing, yeah. And Paul, but this is wild because Paul's talking to the church and he's saying, when I'm writing to you, I'm not writing to you trying to defend ourselves with you. I'm trying to speak in the sight of God as those in Jesus Christ. I'm trying to say God's words to you. 
I'm trying to speak in, uh, uh, as those in Christ. And everything is for your strengthening. Uh, the word strengthening there is the same word that we had before about I will build you up, not tear you down. It's oikos. It's the root of building a house or a, a place to dwell, a living place. And so Paul's like, I've not been trying to tear you down at all. I've been trying to build you up, strengthen you in your faith as speaking in the sight of God as those who are in Christ. That is to say, those who have his anointing, his presence, his spirit in them, his favor. So Paul recognizes then his own, like I don't know if we think about this a lot, that the things that we do are before Christ, right? We just get caught up in this worldly situation and we don't have an awareness that the things I'm gonna say to you, I could say like right now in this room, what I'm saying to you, I'm not saying before you, I am, but I'm saying it before God, right? Or, or, or the things that you say uh, to your husband or your wife or your kids or your neighbors or your coworkers, we're saying before Christ. And that's not to make us like paranoid about it, but it's to say that we can see a higher purpose of our lives. That knowing that God sees everything, that means that he sees the things that aren't right, that he is with us in those things. And that we can choose to speak as those present in Christ before a holy God, wanting strengthening. Well, then now Paul goes from that idea to I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Now look at 20. It's so interesting to me. I'm afraid that when I come to you, you won't find me as you want or wish me to be. And I won't find you as I want or wish you to be. <laughs> He's like, get this. <laughs> when I come to you, we're going to disappoint each other probably. You're not going to be happy with me. I'm not going to be happy with you. This is going to be hard. And then as if that is not enough, he goes on to list the ways that it might go wrong. What is Paul afraid of? I'm afraid there might be quarreling. I'm afraid there might be jealousy. I'm afraid there might be outbursts of anger. I'm afraid there might be factions. I'm afraid there might be slander. I'm afraid there might be gossip. I'm afraid there might be arrogance, and I'm afraid there might be disorder. Where? In the church. Does that sound like the church? Quarreling, jealous, angry, factions, little divisions, you know, slanderous, gossiping about each other, having arrogance about our own faith, and complete disarray. I mean, I'm not, but sadly, it's us, right? Like, I see myself in that list. Wait a minute. Who is Paul talking about? Do you think after all Paul has said in the letter, he's like, and I'm afraid when I get to you, you are going to quarrel and be jealous and have outbursts of anger and factions and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder. I have a tendency to think Paul's like, man, I'm afraid it's going to come out in us. <laughs> Paul's... I read this as Paul saying, I'm afraid that I'm going to come there and act like a fool with you because we don't have this unity. We're not demonstrating our unity in Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? I think it'd be easy to read it as like, oh, the church has got those problems, not Paul. I don't think so. Paul's afraid that this list of things that ought not be in the church might exist there because they're not pressing on to the higher goal of being uni united in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. 
21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. The word also means humiliate me in your presence. Wait, read the word. That God might humiliate me in front of you. That's what Paul's afraid of. That after all the work of the gospel in Corinth and all the hope for the gospel beyond Corinth, that when he arrives, it's going to go badly and he'll be humiliated again. Going on from that, he says, I'm afraid that I'll be grieved over many who have sinned before and have not yet repented. Isn't that interesting? Remember when he said earlier in the letter, it's not bad news because you repented. <laughs> what ought we to do when we see quarreling or strife or d gossip or slander or divisions or arrogance or disorder among us? We should repent. We should repent. That's what Paul would do. He would repent. And he's like, my fear is when I get there, I'm going to be disappointed because you've not yet repented. Not just of those things, but of the sins you committed before. Impurity, that's like a lack of holiness, right? Sexual sin, the root word in the Greek is pornea, which is any kind of sinful sexual behavior, and then debauchery. Um, that they have not, they've indulged in it and not fully repented of it or not repented of it, knowing this. So I wonder, do you believe that God sees everything do you believe that God is interested in, in us recognizing our sinfulness and repenting of our sin, turning from it toward him? Do you believe that the sin is not just their sin, but ours? It's our hearts and our souls and our lives that God is ultimately interested in. I don't think that God's interested in the religious police. I think he's interested in people recognizing him and repenting of our tendencies turning toward him. So then, lastly, 13, Paul says, this will be my third visit to you. Everything must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I wanna say a couple things here. First of all, Paul has come to church in Corinth two or three times. So literally he's saying, I've come two or three times to you, I've seen what's going on there, and th this is gonna be bad if it continues, right? But more than that, you'll recall that Paul brought people with him every time. I think it's wild that Paul doesn't try to do this by himself. He invites the community to come along with him. Everything must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That means two or three people see the same things and, and agree, and not agree because you're Paul, but agree because this is not what the Spirit of God would have for us. This is why it's such a big deal that we don't go around like accusing people of our own volition. We could be totally wrong. Verse two, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, but now I repeat it while I'm absent. On my return, I will not spare those who have sinned earlier or any of the others. Now this starts to sound punitive, right? Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So there's the accusation. Prove it's Jesus in you. He is not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. Look at what Paul does there. He says, I'm not gonna spare you because he is not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. As I read that, Paul's saying, when I get there, uh, God will deal with us. He's gonna deal with all of us. Look at where the power is rooted. Verse four. For to be sure, Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he was raised by the power of God. 
that struck me as I was preparing because I've never thought until I really thought about this verse that a crucifixion looked, well, was weakness for Christ. Yet, he now lives, Jesus Christ, by the power of God. He's alive right now. So Paul's like, I'm confident he's going to work among you. Look at the rest of that verse. Likewise, we are weak in him, Christ, our weakness, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. <laughs> so he goes from like, I'm, when I get there, it could sound like a dad coming home thing, right? But he's like, no, when I get there, God's going to work among us and in the same weakness that we see demonstrated in the cross of Christ, the power of God will be working among us or will be in him while we serve you. I don't think this is Paul saying, I'm going to be punishing you when I get there. That's why we can read that. He's like, I'm going to be with you. And more importantly, God is going to be with us, working amongst us. There's no limitation to the power of God. I want to say something here which is hard for me to fully articulate. But when we think of the cross of Christ, we think of him dying on the cross for our sins and being laid in the grave. But the reality is that in our life, the very power that we have to overcome all these brokennesses among us is actually through the cross, of course, we know that, and in the grave, but through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Like, because he has the power of God right now, we live in him, and therefore he's working among us. It's the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives right now, sinners though we are. So we have that reality that God is working in us, which means this, that we are always independent in Christ. I want to break this down for a moment, independent. I struggle. What do you say here? Because if you even back up to what I just, we just read from the previous, Paul never says, I'm coming of my own volition. He's like, I'm coming in Christ, right? He roots everything in the gospel. But he says, we are independent in Christ. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul says this, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's individual testing. He's like, See what is in you. He, he doesn't say, I'm going to come and examine you and see whether you're in the faith, or I'm going to come and test you. But he says, examine yourselves. It's a warning. Look and see what your life is actually about. Are you in the faith or not? Test yourselves. What does faith look like? Look at the next line. Do, not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail this test. It's the gospel in us. I said to you earlier, one spirit, one path, what is the sign of faith? That the Holy Spirit of God, that the indwelling spirit of Christ is in us. That Jesus himself is in us. Don't you realize it, he asked the church? Let me ask you, do you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? In you. If you're a believer in him, he's in you. And if you, you're not sure, Paul says you should examine yourself, you should test yourself, because this is the test of faith. Does Christ dwell in you? If you fail the test, you ought to be concerned about that. 
If it's just an activity or a religion or a side part of your life, you ought to be concerned about that. We ought to know that Christ is in us. Now, this does not mean we're perfect. Actually, it means that we're going to see all of our imperfections all the time because we're not perfect. And yet, we know he's dwelling in us. Look at verse 6. And I trust that you will discover, if you examine yourself, that we have not failed this test. Christ is in us. You see that? So now I'm going to say the second in, independence in Christ. We are interdependent in Christ. He's like, examine yourself independently. See if Christ is in you. And if you do that, you will see that Christ is in us also. You'll know we passed the test. We are interdependent in Christ. And then the last thing I want to say about being independent in Christ is that we are always dependent on Jesus Christ. Paul said earlier, does the children save for the father or the father for the children? No, the father for the children. We are dependents on the gospel. We're dependents on God the Father, and we're dependents, meaning we depend on Jesus Christ our whole lives. Verse 7, here's the prayers. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though it might seem like we have failed. What? Paul's like, even if it looks like I failed to bring the gospel, I, I'm praying that you do the right things in Christ. No matter what you think of our ministry. Verse 8, because we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We can't work against it, but only for it. Verse 9, we are glad when we are weak, but you are strong. How awesome is that? Our prayer, then, is for your perfection. Or, our prayer, then, is for you to be fully restored. Paul wants the church in Corinth to know the fullness they have in Christ. Remember I told you earlier about the repentance? He wants them to repent. That's why it's not a bad thing that he called out sin amongst them. He wants to build them up. But here he says, I want you to know the fullness, the completeness of being in Christ. I want you to be, and the word perfected is wild, man, because I'm like, well, be perfect? It's not what it says. It says be perfected, past tense, right? Or passively perfected. How? In Christ. The word means this, to be rightly adjusted, to be fit together in God's way for God's purposes. By the way, this is the only place in the scripture this word is found, right here. It reminds me of a puzzle piece that God is shaping for his purpose to fit into his plan, that we have to change, that we have to be open to being formed by him for his purpose. The word can also mean to be repaired or to be mended, to be healed, to be fully restored. What a beautiful prayer Paul has for the church in Corinth. Listen, what a beautiful prayer Jesus Christ has for his church. It would be fully restored. Lean on this a minute. Not any one of us, but all of us. Includes you. Includes me. 
Paul then says, 19 or 10, this is why I write these things when I am absent so that when I come, I may not have to be a harsh in my use of authority. The authority, here it is again, that the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. Remember that theme? He goes back to that. We're going to build you up, not destroy you. We're going to destroy strongholds among you, but we're not going to destroy you. We're going to build you up, a house to live in. 11, closing greetings. Finally, brothers and sisters, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Paul gives f- five commands here. First of all, and I love it more kind of new translation, and in the Greek is what it says. Finally, as I close, uh, rejoice. <laughs> this has been a hard letter, right, <laughs> to the church? And he's like, finally, whatever you do, rejoice. I love the idea of rejoicing because it's like finding joy again. Rejoy yourself. Celebrate again what we have in Jesus Christ. Celebrate the gospel. The Christ is in you. Secondly, listen to this, be perfected. It's the same word that we have, this, this fullness of Christ. Allow him to work in your life to restore you fully. Third, be encouraged. Don't be discouraged even by this letter, but be encouraged. Fourth, be of one mind. Have a unity of mind of thoughts, of of our intention. And then lastly, live in serenity. You know what I was thinking? Serenity is the opposite of all those things that Paul's afraid of, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, factions, anger, outbursts, jealousy. The opposite of that stuff is peace. Christ came back, he said, peace to you. Resurrection power brings peace in our lives. Look at what the word says. And if you do, the love of God, or I'm sorry, the the God of love and peace will be with you, with you. And if you do those things, he'll be with you. Here we go, 12. So greet each other with a holy kiss. I know you might be ready for this, but we're all gonna do holy kisses this morning. Are you ready? Turn to your neighbor, not the one that you're married to. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Right, what is Paul saying here? Why after all these things and all the sin and all the stuff, things like, hey, and by the way, greet each other with a holy kiss. I was thinking about the family Bible and I remember early in my days of family Bible and this has been weird lately because of the disease stuff over the last couple of years, the COVID stuff, but it was the hug in his church, man. You just come in and people are hugging you. I remember the first time I visited, and it was before I was a preacher here, and I was just like, what is this place? And what happened to that? Do you think Paul wants us to kiss each other? Like, mwah. I mean, that's what it says. Get this. At the close of the letter, Paul wants the church to love each other intimately but appropriately, right? It's a holy kiss. It's not a kiss for any other purpose, but a holy kiss. I think it's kind of the equivalent of a hug. If we were in a kissing culture, you could do the kiss, the cheek thing, you know, thing. But he's once an intimacy as a family member. As you would kiss your mom or dad, as you would kiss your children, an affection amongst the people. Why? Because it's going to be hard to be in conflict with people that you love. Isn't that true? You love your family, but if you're having a hard time, you can't hardly kiss them. Because you know it's going to happen. You're going to make up, right? He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Look at 13. 
and all the saints send their greetings or their blessings. Everyone greets you. And then lastly, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, all of you. He wants a blessing. I wonder, what do you think God wants of you? What do you think God wants amongst his holy people? What kind of behavior, what kind of affection, what kind of love, what kind of concern does God desire to have amongst us, amongst his people? And then lastly, is Christ in us? Not just in me, but in you. Is there a holy, heavenly relationship? I don't know if you have that. That's what the invitation is for. True relationship with Christ. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the day. We thank you for this intimacy that we're drawn into. We thank you that you want all of us and not some of us and not part of any one of us. And we thank you, Father, that we are called into your kingdom here. Lord, for the, the things that continue to stand in our way to keep us from being honest with you, honest with ourselves, and honest with others, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break those things down, that you would, by your holy power, by the resurrection power of Christ, remove them from our lives. Lord, that we might know you and be fully known by you. Father, for those of us who um, have trusted you in our lives, I pray that we would open the door more, that we would give all of ourselves to you, that you could have your way in us, whatever you want, whatever it looks like, because it's better than what we have planned. And then, Father, for those who maybe don't even know a relationship with you at all, that don't know that your Holy Spirit right now would be guiding them into a commitment to believe in you, to try, to follow, to listen, to pray, that you might transform us, that we might become Christian, little Christs anointed by you. Help us, Father, in this work. Help us to test ourselves and all the things your word said today that we might know we belong to you. We love you so much. We thank you for the word. We thank you for uh, the witness of the early church to us um, and your, more importantly, Father, your intimate um, teaching, a revelation in our actual lives. We give you praise and thanks for you in Jesus' name. Amen.